Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Acts 17, 16 through 34. Uh, right after I graduated from seminary in 2002, I had some difficulty finding a pastoral call and so was out of work, struggling to find work for uh, about a year, or a year and a half, and so I decided to start a paint business. Um, decided I'd go into homes and do some interior painting. Had a name for it, Intergalactic Painting. Painting the universe one house at a time. I, I almost just wanted to do the business just for the sake of that name. Um, but I discovered as I got some jobs and got to work painting that the preliminary work that you do, getting ready to paint, takes a lot of time. And if you've done any painting on the inside of your house, you know what I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> there's furniture to be moved, there's outlet covers and vent covers to be removed, there's windows to be covered, you've got to tape off the ceiling, you've got to make sure every inch of the carpet or the hardwoods is covered with a tarp or newspaper of some sort. Of course, you've got to go out and buy all the supplies and get your primer and your paint ready. On and on it goes. There is a considerable amount of preliminary work that goes into painting before you get to the main job, right? Well, in this sermon series so far on evangelism, all that we've been doing so far is all preliminary work. Uh, we haven't really gotten to the main task, the main job. We haven't started painting the room yet. Uh, there's two pretty serious errors we can get into in this regard when it comes to evangelism. We can neglect the preliminary work and just kind of walk in and just start hitting someone over the head with the gospel. I mean, imagine in a painting situation if you just went in and started painting the room without moving the furniture or taping off the ceiling or removing the outlet covers. What a mess you would make them things, right? You know how awful that would be. Sometimes we make a mess of evangelism because we don't do the preliminary work. We just charge in, telling people what to believe. But an equally serious problem would be that we would do all the preliminary work and never paint the room <laughs> and never get to the main thing, the main task, never get to the gospel. That's an equally serious problem. That's what we're going to be talking about here this morning in our last two Principles. We've been going through seven principles of evangelism. We've been looking at Acts 17, 16 through 34 uh, each Sunday over the last four Sundays, and we're concluding that series today with these final two principles. But I'm going to read this passage to us one more time, Acts 17, 16 through 34. If you have that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now... While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? 
For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there could spend, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Lord, open our eyes to see truth, to be changed by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as has been our custom, let me get you up to speed. A little review here about where we've been in this series. These seven principles, as I've been telling you, uh, were actually devised by a guy named Jerem Bars, a professor of mine back at Covenant Seminary. And all these principles have come out of this passage in Acts chapter 17. So... um, Here is where we have been. Let me share with you the first five principles that we've covered over the last three Sundays. When we seek to share the gospel with people, uh, when we are in situations where we're given the opportunity to tell people about Jesus, to get into spiritual conversations, first principle, always show respect. Respect the people you talk to. That's what Paul's situation was here in Acts 17. He's speaking to the Areopagus, and he's kind, he's respectful, he's cordial to them. Um, Another way to phrase this principle is just to say this. People probably aren't going to listen to you if they think you don't like them, if they think you're against them, if they don't sense that you respect them. They're they're not going to listen. So respect the people that you talk to. Principle two, seek to build bridges. That is, look first for the things you can agree with in the person that you're talking to rather than looking for the things that you disagree with. I think this generally is our tendency. We want to confront. We want to challenge right off the bat and point out where people are wrong in their beliefs. Seek first to look for what you have in common. You'll find there's a lot more in common with the people you talk to than you think. So look for those and build bridges on that. Principle three, understand what others believe. Do the work to understand the convictions, the philosophy, the worldview of the people that you're talking to. And the only way really to do this is to ask questions. 
and listen when people answer your questions. Be curious about people. Show a genuine interest by spending time asking questions, listening, so that you're better informed to apply the gospel to their situation. Principle four, speak the right language. We talked about this last Sunday. Try to avoid churchy language, pious phrases, Christian ease, just languages, words, and phrases that might alienate or confuse people. Seek as best as you can to steer clear of that. We saw how Paul was very careful in the language that he used in Acts 17. And then lastly, engage in reasoned persuasion. That is, be prepared for an exchange of ideas. That's what Paul did. It says he reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Uh, He was equipped to have a discussion, a dialogue. And just as Peter commands us that we should be prepared to give a defense to everyone who asks us to do so for the hope that is in us. So those are the first five principles. Two more principles today as we conclude this series. The sixth principle is this. Clarify the gospel. Now we're getting past the preliminary work. Now we're getting to the main task. Now we're starting to paint the room. Clarify the gospel. Now remember, Acts 17, Paul is here in Athens, Greece. Um, this is the intellectual capital of the ancient world. This is a, an, what we might call an unchurched city, <laughs> you know, a very non-Christian kind of place. Uh, a lot of people in Athens were polytheists. They believed in many different gods. We heard about these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Uh, these people were not familiar at all with basic categories, names, places of Old Testament biblical theology. That was just not anything these people understood. They were not acquainted with that way of thinking. And our culture actually is fairly similar to the culture into which Paul was speaking here in Acts 17. We live in not a polytheistic culture, but what we call a postmodern culture. And we spent one sermon just talking about what that meant, postmodernism, where people do not believe there is an absolute truth under which we're all accountable. They believe, postmodernists believe, the truth is created, not discovered. You make up your own truth. That morality is arrived at by popular opinion, by consensus. That there really isn't anybody that has any authority to speak on anyone's behalf, so authority is rejected, and there is suspicion of anyone claiming anything authoritative. That's the culture in which we live, and we actually live in a very unchurched culture too, and I've shared this statistic with you many times that here in Delaware County, according to the statistics that I've seen, only about 27% of the people in this county have any kind of official religious affiliation. So that's about three-quarters of the people in this county that are probably not in church, no commitment or connection to any local body of believers. That ends up being about 80,000 people in this county. So there are some similar, lots of differences, of course, between Athens and Muncie, Yorktown, but uh, uh, some similarities as well. And because of this situation that Paul finds himself in, where it's a very unchurched, non-Christian, non-biblical kind of culture, he's very, very careful about what he says and how he says it. He's very deliberate. He's very intentional. He's very shrewd about how he addresses, how he evangelizes, how... He presents the gospel. But here's something we find as we get to the end of this address. 
Even though these first five principles are absolutely true, we should take them very seriously, Paul by no means is going to water down the gospel. Uh, Paul is going to tell the truth. And maybe some of you, as you've gone through these first five principles, you've thought, man, that seems kind of wishy-washy and kind of just that seems so like you're almost kind of catering to people and just kind of, you know, um, accommodating your message to their needs and opinions. Well, we get to the end of this and we find that Paul is actually willing to say some things that most of us are not willing to say in an unchurched, non-Christian culture. What Paul does here at the end is he gets to finally clarifying the gospel. He clarifies what the gospel means, what it entails, what it's all about. And, And notice what Paul's gospel is not, as we look at verses 30 and 31 here at the end of the chapter. Um, When Paul qualifies or clarifies this gospel, he's not, he he doesn't do it like this. He doesn't speak to the Areopagus and say, what you all need to do is believe in God. Just acknowledge that God exists. Come to a belief in God. that's, That's not what he does. Nor does he say, um, you all need to stop being idolaters and start living right. Start being religious, good, dutiful people. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, here's the gospel, that God loves everybody just the way they are. And you don't need to be concerned about anything in your life. He is perfectly content with you, exactly as you are. Nor does he say, Epicureans, Stoics, polytheists, as long as you're sincere and committed to your religion, it's okay because every religion eventually gets to the same God. We all basically believe the same things. That's the good news. Just keep doing your religion as best as you can. That's not what he says. Nor does he say you need to respond to an altar call or start going to church. Nor does he say you all need to start getting more involved in your community and helping the poor more. That's not the gospel that Paul clarifies. What what does he say in verses 30 and 31? Two two things that he mentions. Now, this isn't all there is to be said about the gospel, okay? But here's what are recorded here for us in verses 30 and 31. The first thing that Paul talks about is repentance. Verse 30, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul is not afraid, even as he respects and is careful and shrewd in the language that he uses, he is not afraid to say, friends, you need to repent. What is repentance? Repentance is just simply this. It's taking a U-turn in your life. It's like this. You're walking this way. You realize you're going the wrong way. You turn around and you walk in the opposite direction. That's repentance. You're going north on I-69, and you realize you're going the wrong way, so you get off the exit, you turn, and you go south on I-69 because you were going in the wrong direction. That's repentance, a U-turn in life, a turning away from your sin, from your rebellion, and a turning toward God through Christ that times of refreshing may come to turn from your sin to God in faith 
through Jesus. That's what repentance is. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now, who does he say needs to repent? Is he saying uh, just all the murderers and the rapists and the drug dealers, all the really bad people need to repent? Is that what he says? Is that the gospel that he's telling us about here? No. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Every man, every woman, every child from every race, from every different kind of religion, repent. No exceptions. And why does he say that we need to repent? Well, it's because, according to verse 31, uh, there is going to be a judgment day. Now, he mentions this thing here at the beginning of verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere. I think what uh, he's saying there is not that God didn't notice the ignorance of the Athenians or that he was unaware of it, but that in his mercy he was content to overlook it for a time. But there will come a time when time is up, when God's mercy and patience will be up, and that's called judgment day. There is a time when Jesus comes again for judgment day, and he goes on to even explain a few things about judgment day. Number one, it's certain, it's fixed, it says, in the start of verse 31. The date of Jesus' return has already been established. The date for the end of human history is in the mind of God. It's already been fixed, so it is certain to happen. It's universal in verse 31. He will judge the world, he says. And it's a judgment that will be fair because he will judge the world in righteousness. There's not going to be any injustice here. No one will have any right to complain that they, he, she, have been judged unfairly. And this is part of Paul's gospel. This is how he presents the gospel. He calls on people to repent. I wonder how many false conversions there have been over the years because we've talked about the forgiveness of sins that are available in Jesus, which is good, but we have neglected to call people to repent. Repentance doesn't save us, but as our confession says, we can't expect forgiveness of sins if no repentance exists. In our lives, John MacArthur says it like this, a person not being purified from sin has no claim in being saved from it. A person not seeking to turn from sin has no right to claim that he or she has been forgiven of it. Uh, Repentance is a necessary part of what it is to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Not something that saves us, but something that goes along with our salvation. Well, Paul also clarifies the gospel, of course, by talking about Jesus. The man that he has appointed, he says in verse 31. He refers to this Jesus, this man who... Um, is going to judge the world, and we know that because God has raised him from the dead. This is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to die for sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. He has now been vindicated by the Father, and he has the full right now to judge all of humankind. And so you might not know Jesus today, but I guarantee you that one day you will meet him, and you will have to give an account of all of your thoughts, words, and deeds to him on judgment day. And that is an appropriate thing to say when we're sharing the gospel. Judgment day is coming, and you're going to have to meet 
Jesus. We have to say this, friends. We live in a postmodern culture. A lot of people aren't going to like this. They're going to object to it. You're going to be looked at as a bigot for mentioning this. But this is the truth, and it is the only hope that anyone has for being forgiven for their sins and to be reconciled to their Creator. This is, this is the only hope, and you and I have been entrusted with a message of reconciliation. This message has been given to us to declare to others. We have a responsibility. There's nothing else we can tell people that would allow them to be reconciled to their Creator. So, this is, this is the main thing. This is what we've got to get to. Eventually, we've got to clarify the gospel. That's the sixth principle. The seventh principle <clears throat> kind of flows from the sixth principle, and it's this. Challenge people to become Christians. We should be prepared at the right time to get to the point where we're able to say to somebody, do you want to become a Christian? Do you know that you can become a Christian right now? And, in fact, I would be happy to pray with you and to instruct you and help you to know how to pray so that at this very moment, right now, you can become a Christian. Do you want to do that? I'm not saying pressure. We don't pressure people to become Christians. But to offer the challenge is an appropriate thing to do. Now, you might say, but now, aren't you, I mean, this is just, I know, making everybody uncomfortable. And you're probably thinking, isn't this, you know, forcing people against their will? Isn't this forcing my religion on people? Isn't this um, imposing my opinion on other people? Isn't evangelism imposing our opinion? Well, no, because first of all, it's really not your opinion. It's not something that you came up with. It's not something that I came up with. This idea of a crucified and arisen Savior who's coming again to judge all of mankind, I, I didn't come up with that, and you didn't come up with that. Uh, this is something that's been told to us, so it doesn't belong to you in, in that sense. It's not something you devise. So it's not your opinion, and it's not your opinion. It's not really an opinion. What we're doing is telling people something that happened in the past, telling them that something's going to happen in the future. You know, I was watching the news last night, and they said we might get a wintry mix next week. Did you hear about that? Now, I'm coming to you saying, you know what, we might have a wintry weather mix next week. Now, are you going to respond to me and say, oh, stop imposing your opinion on me? You're not going to say that, because what am I doing? I'm just sharing with you the prediction that I've heard. And that's kind of what we're doing in evangelism. We're sharing what we have heard, what we know. Something happened in the past, something's going to happen in the future, and I'm just the messenger. You're not imposing your opinion on anyone. <clears throat> but I do want to be clear here that when we get to evangelism, friends, we, we are challenging people to a new way of life. We're not just calling people to, to just keep doing what they're doing and now add Jesus to it. We're calling people to leave darkness behind and to start walk, walking in the light. We're, we're challenging people to stop living for their glory and to start living for God's glory. We're challenging people to leave behind sexual immorality and to begin embracing sexual purity. We're calling on people to leave behind their false gods and to start loving, serving, and trusting the one true living God. 
We're calling people to a whole new way of life. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, a Christian is a new creation in Christ. The old has passed, the new has come. There's no such thing as a Christian who is embracing continually the old. And so when we challenge or when we clarify the gospel, we have to eventually get to this point where we're honest with people and we're clear. Now, if we do this, if we speak this way to people, I'll guarantee you something, that evangelism, proper evangelism, can in this way then take a really long time. Um, This is not just a you know, one-time shot thing. It's just, I mean, that happens, but not very often where you just sit down, give the gospel, person believes they're a Christian and you're done. It just doesn't work that way very often, particularly when you're honest and clear about what the gospel is and what's involved in being a Christian. You're going to find people respond in a number of different ways. And so look what happens here to Paul. After these people hear what Paul has to say, um, we get these different responses. Uh, In verse 34, some believe. Some men joined him and believed. Verse 32, there's hostility. Some of them mocked when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. But look at the end of verse 32. Some say this, we'll hear you again about this. I want to keep talking. Uh, Let's continue this conversation later. That right there could be the beginning of a long relationship that Paul might have with these people. Talking, exchanging ideas, reasoning, persuading, and that might take a long time. Friends, evangelism, I just want to warn you and prepare you. Get ready for it to take months, years, decades. It can take that long. You know, are you willing to be patient with people in this regard instead of looking for the quick results? Look what J.I. Packer says. I think he sums this up really well. <clears throat> Talking about evangelism, what you have to do is take time with the person, make friends with him, get alongside him, find out where he is in terms of spiritual understanding, start dealing with him at that point. You have to explain the gospel to him and be sure that he understands it and is convinced of its truth, that's clarifying the gospel, before you start pressing him to an act of response. That's challenging. At each stage, though, you have to be willing to go along with him at God's speed, which may seem to you a strangely slow speed. But that is God's business, not yours. Your business is simply to keep pace with what God is doing in his life. If you're evangelizing someone, talking to someone about the gospel, and they're just telling you, look, I'm not ready to commit. I don't understand this yet. No, I don't want to become a Christian. That is not a failure, friends. And that is not a sign to you from God that you should give up. Be patient. Persevere. Hang in there. Uh, Be patient, not necessarily with the person, although that's part of it. Be patient with what God is doing in the life of that person. It's very important when you start challenging people to respond. A number of different responses. But still, you might be saying, you know, I, I just... This just seems so pushy. Um, Should we just live and let live? Who am I to tell others what they're supposed to believe? Uh, Do I really want to be known as a proselytizer? Well, before we conclude, I want to share with you a video. Uh, It's called uh, An Atheist Perspective on Evangelism. 
And you might have ideas in your head about what an atheist would think about evangelism. But this video, maybe some of you have seen it, it's been around for a long time, <clears throat> is by the guy on the, uh, on the left there. His name is Penn Gillette. These two, they're called Penn and Teller. They're uh, kind of a comedy-slash-magician act. They've been around for uh, a long time. And Penn Gillette, the guy on the left there, makes, um, makes no... Um, bones about the fact that, that he is an atheist, a committed atheist, very bright, intelligent, well-read atheist, well-spoken, outspoken atheist. Well, <clears throat> there's a, a video where Penn starts talking about um, a show that they gave somewhere, and after the show, there was a Christian who came up and started talking to him, uh, seeking to evangelize him. And this video is, I don't know, three and a half minutes or so, but I want you to watch it. I want you to think about the principles that we've been covering so far and, and see how they come up in what this guy says. But if you're afraid of evangelizing, proselytizing, push, being too pushy, uh, just, just listen to what Penn has to say. This is unusual for Penn Gillette because he has a lot to say. So for, for him to be quiet is, is just not like him.
He says he, he doesn't respect someone who doesn't proselytize. Uh, I mean, I, I'm in that boat, worrying and being concerned that people are not going to respect me. They're going to hate me if I do proselytize. Have you ever wondered if people might disrespect you because you don't talk about your faith more often? Is, is that possible? It seems that it is, according to this man. Well, let me conclude here with just some uh, quick um, concluding applications, suggestions for you. Number one, workshop, as Josh mentioned during our announcements, Wednesday at 7 p.m. This Wednesday night, 7 p.m. here at the church, Josh will be leading us through an evangelism workshop, giving us some very practical, clear ideas about how we can start conversations uh, with people that we want to share the gospel with. Secondly, pray. Uh, Hopefully you haven't forgot about the person that God laid on your heart during this first sermon of this series. Remember, I asked you to think of somebody and then pray for that person. Uh, Don't forget about that person. Don't give up on that just because the sermon series is ending. Pray for that person. You can pray according to how Paul prays in Colossians 4, 3 and 4. He says, pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Meditate on that verse. Make that your prayer for the person that God is leading you to speak to. Life groups. Um, Friends, are your life groups open to unbelievers? I mean, I could ask, are they open to new people? That's one question. I'm saying, are they open to unbelievers? Are you making room for unbelievers? Are you thinking about how you might invite even unbelievers into your group? That's one way to get people to hear the gospel. They might not come through the front door of the church, but they might come through the side door, through a life group. Conversation. Um... As you're talking to people, uh, just casually mention what God is doing in your life. Uh, If someone asks you how your weekend was, you'll tell them if you went on vacation or went to the lake or watched a game. Why not also just say, well, I learned something at church, or God taught me this thing in the Scriptures, or here's something I've really been struggling with, and I feel like uh, a Christian friend, by leading me to some good godly counsel, helped me work through it. You don't have to go on and on and on about it but you can just drop it into a conversation. Uh, Just like you talk about anything else that you're interested in and committed to. And then lastly, meditate, friends. Meditate on what we've learned here. Meditate on the certainty of judgment. A judgment day is coming. There is a hell, and people are going there. And the only way that they can avoid that is by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Meditate on that. Think about that reality. Don't sweep that under the rug. (coughs) Meditate on the certainty of judgment. And then meditate also on sovereign grace. Because, friends, you might stumble and you might stammer and you might not get it all right and you might not have answers to the questions that are given to you. But, friends, nothing in all creation is going to stop God from saving all that he has elected from before the foundation of the world. All that the Father has given to the Son will be saved. God is going to do that. The astonishing thing is he wants to use you to accomplish that. So let's pray, and we'll get ready to come to the Lord's table. Father, thank you for um, the instruction and wisdom that are present in your word for us And, Lord, I do ask that you would give our hearts courage and um, boldness uh, so that we might share the gospel as you give us opportunity. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.